Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 5. Let's give our attentive listening, uh, hearing to the reading of God's word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship you. We thank you for gathering us to sing your praise. We thank you for the call to confess before you who we are and who you are. Uh, And now, Lord, thank you for calling us to hear. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Uh, Give us uh, worshipful ears uh, to receive your word with humility, with uh, teachable hearts, uh, with a longing to be shaped by your word uh, into the image of your son. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and we're hitting chapter 14 now. We're well past the the halfway mark. Uh, And if you recall, chapter 12, 13, we're about how the dragon and the beast, which symbolize Satan, the devil, and all of his evil forces, coming against the, the women, which is symbol for the church, in the wilderness, which is symbol for our world, right? And so our uh, understanding of that has been more, uh, uh, giving us more of this understanding of how to guard against, how to battle against, how to be defensive towards the enemy's attacks, right? Uh, Chapter 14, we're, we're giving a slightly different picture, maybe a very different picture of the church now, um, at home, in in its headquarters, so to speak. So it's almost like how when you, you know, for those of you who've seen the Matrix series, it, it starts off with the Matrix, right? It shows you all the battle scenes that goes on within the Matrix, but then as the movie unfolds, you see more of Zion. You see more of what happens in their headquarters, uh, what their life looks like, what they celebrate, and things like that, and what they sing about. Chapter 14 is that. Right. We start getting a picture of the church in its headquarters and uh, what we celebrate, what we do, what we're about, and not just being on the defensive, but also what puts us on the offensive um, as people of God. Okay, There are three aspects of this picture I want to highlight for you. Uh, a picture of where God's people stand. That's the first one. A picture of what God's people sing. That's number two. And a picture of what God's people speak. Okay, a picture of where we stand, a picture of what we should sing, and a picture of what we should speak. Okay, these three. All right, so point number one, uh, a picture of where we stand. Verse one, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
Uh, notice where this is said to be taking place. It's Mount Zion. Is this the physical Mount Zion that appears in the Old Testament? No, not if you interpret this in context. Uh, it says the Lamb stood on Mount Zion. Right? Uh, and we know the Lamb is Christ. It's Jesus. And sorry to disappoint, he's not literally a Lamb. He doesn't walk on fours. He's not uh, wooly and, you know, he doesn't have hooves. Um, this is symbolism. So, so as much as the lamb is a symbol, so is the mountain. So are the 144,000. This is a picture of heaven, referring to the, the kingdom of God, where God's king reigns and his people stand with him. This is also a reference to Psalm chapter 2, where it says that God has established for himself a king, the true king, upon Zion, and that was the poetic way, another symbolic way of saying, here is your key to Zion. Here's the way to Zion. Look to this king who will help you and bring you home, right? He's, he's the one you look to. He's your savior. Uh, he's your hero, which is another way of saying uh, what? It, it's not up to you, and, and you're not your own king. You're not the hero of your own story, there is another, right? So this is not, the Bible's narrative is not, you know, God helps those who help themselves, kind of religious truism. No, it's the opposite of that. This is God saying, I'm, I'm presenting to you a king, the chosen king who will ascend the hill for you in order to save you, okay? The assumption here is not, you need to rise to the occasion and ascend the hill. Uh, the message here is, there's a king who rises to the occasion on your behalf, who is powerful enough to lift you to where he is. Trust in him and, and stand by him. Uh, listen to this description of the king of Zion in Psalm 146. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, right? He's going to do it. Uh, he will bring salvation to his people. What are we doing? What are the people of God doing here? We're getting lifted. We're getting healed. We're getting set free. We're being upheld. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our need of it. We offer him no assistance, no cooperation. We're just getting saved, okay? This is a king who comes to save helpless and people, to, to heal those who are broken, adopt those who've been, those who've been orphaned, to forgive the, the guilty, embrace the ashamed. He's here to do it all for those who lost it all. Okay. Now, uh, so think about this. If you stand with this king, what does that make you, necessarily? What does this make you if you stand by this king? What are you saying about yourself? You are a weakling. You are so weak and helpless. Uh, you are utterly dependent on this king. You're, you're like the hobbits next to Aragorn. Uh, you're, you're the children standing next to Aslan. You, you're nothing without him. But with him, you have everything. Everything you need. Uh, this, is, this is a picture showing us uh, this picture of heaven essentially is a picture of God's people standing by the Lamb, and that's all they need. 
all they'll ever need, and they're satisfied in him. Okay, the 144,000 here are not armed and equipped with chariots and war horses, bows and arrows. Um, they're just standing by the lamb, and that's enough. And that is to say, the people of God are people who look to this king, and, and they find everything sufficient for them, for their identity, for their security, for their self-worth. They find all of that in, in this lamb, in this king. They, they're the ones, God's people are the ones who look to him and say, I am safe, I'm cared for, I am worthy, I can hold my head up high because I have Christ uh, and because of Christ alone. Their uh, mode of operation in life is not, I, I need more positivity, I need to boost my self-esteem, I need to be the best version of myself. No, their agenda is, I need to be near the Savior and King. And if I'm standing there by Him, I have everything I'll ever need. That's the people of God. That's the heart of the, the 144,000. Okay. Is this where you stand right now? Is your Savior uh, enough for you? Uh, are you safe in His arms, in His care? Um, do you have all that you need in him? Remember the, the context of last week's passage as well, where we looked at how uh, the beast presents itself as sort of a pretend lamb, right? Uh, the beast comes in the form of a lamb with two horns, but inside it's really a dragon. That means Satan is deceptive, right? And, and it will offer you all kinds of false hopes, false gospels, false Christ figures, false savior figures in your life, as long as he can distract you from relying on the true Christ, He'll say, um, get money, right? That, that will make you safe. That will give you security. Get people's approval. Get them to like you. That's where you draw your self-worth. Uh, develop a good self-image or body image that you'd be proud of. Okay? Create an Instagram-friendly life. Um, that, will, that will get you going. And he'll get you hooked on anything and everything as long as it gets you unhooked from your maker. And... Um, that's what turns even the good things in life that God's gifted us with into bad gods, bad idols. Um, these, these things that suddenly turn all beastly and devilish um, as soon as we, we get obsessed with them. Uh, the reason is because it's a lie. These material temporary things will never satisfy us. If we love these material temporary things, it'll only leave us heartbroken. In the timeless words of the late David Foster Wallace, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, parables. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And that's from the late atheist writer, uh, David Foster Wallace. He's saying everybody, everybody worships something, and if you, if you happen to worship the wrong thing, it will destroy you. All that the false lamb offers you is uh, false objects of worship, that make you die a million deaths um, before they finally put you away for good. 
A part of us knows this, but we have trouble with putting this on the forefront of our daily consciousness. All of us, uh, to some degree, know this. Like None of us, I think, would say on our deathbed, uh, I wish I could just have made a few more dollars. I wish I had gotten that extra additional promotion. Uh, I wish I had bought a slightly bigger house with an extra room. I wish I had worked harder for, for, for a better grade so I can take the A minus to an A. Um, I wish I had worked harder for a better body and self-image. All the things that we won't miss on our deathbed. <laughs> we are daily occupied with it in our consciousness. Our daily consciousness is almost entirely occupied with the things that we won't miss in our final hour. Um, why? Because death takes all these away. Death can absolutely rob us of all these things. And the false lamb offers us only such things. The things that will dissipate, disappear, die away in the face of suffering, decay, sin, and death. That's all that the false lamb is offering you. But... The Lamb of God, the true Christ, he offers us something so meaningful that death can't even take away from us. What is that? It's himself. It's his love and his resurrection power that keeps that love alive even after death. And so if you have him, you have it all. If you don't have him, in a sense, you have nothing at all. At least nothing you can keep. Here, here's the picture, right? This picture is here to remind us we need to get into the practice of standing by this Savior and this King always, daily, to keep Him at the forefront of our daily consciousness. Uh, we talk about doing daily devotionals, right? Reading the Bible every day. This is, this is what that's really about, the daily consciousness of our Savior and King. Daily coming to the knowledge of, I've, I've been saved. I'm safe. So I belong in life and in death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. So this day is His. The, the choices ahead of me are His. My relationships are His. My body is His. My spending is His. It's all His. And making my life all about pleasing Him is the best thing I can do today. That daily consciousness is what we're really striving for in our daily devotionals, right? Because that's standing by him on the mountain. That's standing by the lamb, identifying him as he's all I need. He's all I'll ever need. So I enter into today not as a needy, wanting being, but as a satisfied being seeking to please my Savior. That's where we stand daily. Uh, this is what we want to sober up to daily. And point number two, heading in that same direction, we also get the picture of what God's people sing. And it's a really helpful picture. It says in verse two, there was a voice in heaven that sounded like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And we, and we learn what that is in verse 3. That is the 144,000 singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Okay? And the concept of new songs in the Bible is not like our modern concept of, you know, like artists putting out new albums, you know, 
uh, year after year, dropping another one, that kind of, no. Uh, the, the biblical idea of a new song is, uh, in the Old Testament, it's always an expression of praise for God's victory over his enemies. Okay. Sing a new song to God because he has won the victory for his people over against his and our enemies. And in, it's in that context that this singing is heard and observed by John. Here, God's people are forever singing a new song to God for his forever victory over his enemies and our enemies, sin, misery, suffering, sickness, death, right? The 144,000 here are singing of that. Well, why does it say, though, no one could learn that song except for the 144,000, okay? And that's implying that there is something unique, exclusive, even secretive about the song, the new song that God's people are singing here, isn't it? Those who stand by their Savior and King, okay? What, what's so special about them? These were those who were afflicted by sin, suffering, death, now saved through Jesus Christ, and it is they who get to have this unique experience and privilege of singing this new salvation song that nobody else can sing. To put simply, it's, it's almost like saying, you got to really know what it means to get saved to get singing, if, if you don't know what it is to be saved, you don't really know this song. This past week, um, Lynn picked up the kids. My wife picked the kids from school, and then we planned on going out for lunch together. So they came home to pick me up, and as they pulled into the driveway, I was standing there waiting. Lynn rolled down the window, and I kid you not, music was blasting, and she was having her little dance party in the car and you know I immediately hopped into the car and I joined her uh, we were doing I think something that resembles dancing I don't know if you can call it that uh, we don't we don't really dance uh, we we gave each other the biggest high five we we let out like a loud whoop uh, why because it was the last day of school the kids are out it's done. It is finished. We get to take a break from the, the morning shift before our shift. Uh, you know, parents have like two parallel lives. It's like you do the Batman thing before you do the Bruce Wayne thing. Um, so uh, there's, a, in a sense, a work more important, more missional than our own work that's being parents. And that means you have to wake up earlier than you normally would, you feed the kids, you drop them off at school, and then your day starts. Uh, and then uh, at the end of your workday, there's the other evening shift you get on, um, the, the shift after your shift. There's dinner time with the kids, bedtime with the kids, or devotional time with the kids when we're really nailing it. Uh, so after a year of that, plus PTA meetings, or right, exam preparation, all, right, all the birthday parties, after all of that, summer has arrived. And that relief was so great, uh, not just because we got to the end of it, but because you know, the work has been worthwhile. We, we, we did great, we did good, high five, you deserve it. That was worth singing about and, and even dancing to or trying to dance to. It's, it's really hard for anybody 
to empathize with that unless you're also a parent. Uh, to sing with us, to sing like us, you got to have lived like us. What is this new salvation song? Who gets to sing it? If you have genuinely lived it, this parallel spiritual reality, and you've, you've gone to hell and back, you've, you've suffered the hopelessness without God, despair without Him, and you have seen His light, and He has saved your life forever. That relief is this new song. It's this salvation song that comes out of the saints, celebrating this shepherd, this king who will take care of us, who will bring us home. If you've lived that, then you have a song to sing, and we have some high-fiving to do. We can try to dance if you know how to dance. We can start yelling. We can start doing all kinds of things. The last thing we can do is be silent. Those who believe this, those who lived it, they get to sing. Did you know that not even angels get to sing this? Right? They don't know what it's, what it's like to be saved from sin and damnation. They envy this song we know how to sing. This is our song. Okay? You, you, um, you have all these contexts in your life, right? You, you go to work with your coworkers, and then you know, naturally when it comes to those seasons where you get your paycheck or you get your three-day weekend, or maybe this weekend you did, you, you celebrate that with your coworkers, those who share that context of work with you. There's a song there. Uh, those of you who attend school, right, when exam season's over, right, you celebrate there, and there's a song there for you. Okay. Um, if you have a favorite sports team, right, when they're, when they're celebrating their victories and their championships, right, you have a, a unique song there to sing. We have another work context, another school, another sports team that we're all about, that we identify with, that's more essential to us than anything else, like this, this Batman thing, apart from the Bruce Wayne thing we do, and that's being followers of Jesus Christ and, and, and being children of our Heavenly Father. And that's what we sing about. And here's the thing. Our king, he's finished it all. He's brought summer to us. He, through his death and resurrection, there's nothing more left for us to do except to celebrate him, to rejoice in him, to sing a new song uh, to him. We should all pull up to his driveway and start, start a dance party with Jesus. And, and that's... A part of what, a big part of what we're doing here, week in and week out, to sing and to celebrate this, this Savior who defines us, Christ, to sing of Him, what He has done, what He's promised us. And the Bible is therefore filled with um, commands to sing, exhortation to sing, and reminds us of the, teaches us of the various benefits of singing. So let me list a few of those things. First, um, Music serves as a vehicle for the Word of God, making His Word more memorable for us through the melody and, and, the, and the lyrics, and, and hence the importance of singing substantive things in the context of worship, singing the gospel, singing not so much of our feelings uh, and, and 
and remembering how we felt at, at one point, but remembering who God is, what he's done, what he's promised. Singing these things and remembering these things through music. Music is also a heavenly language. It's something that God does. He sings. He's been singing. So when we sing his truth, we, we harmonize to him in a sense. We, we, we get into the spiritual duet, if you will. We fellowship with him through music. Singing is also, like I said, commanded. So it's an act of obedience. When you sing, you obey God's command to sing with your whole body. It's physical obedience, right? From your vocal cords to your uh, lungs, diaphragm. Uh, you, you, you submit your body to, to obedience to the Lord. And, um, and it's, it's an easier, more enjoyable part of obeying God. And, and, and when God commands you to sing and you don't sing, I don't know if, what are the chances of you obeying him in other things that are more difficult? He's telling you to sing. Are you singing? Uh, it's a more enjoyable, right, way of obeying God. And if we struggle there, we may struggle with obeying him in resistance and in temptation. Sing. Sing. Bring your body, whole body, your voice, your ears, everything in submission to God's command to sing. Music also comforts us. It counsels us. It uplifts us. It presses truth from our minds down to our hearts, etc., etc. These are all the reasons God gives us to sing and to sing about him, sing his words, sing his truth and his promises, okay? And, you know, maybe it's a, it's a Presbyterian thing. I know we're, we're kind of a shy bunch, right? We don't sing all that loud, right? Um, but I want to encourage you, if you've been saved, <laughs> uh, you have an amazing and an incredibly awesome God at some point, you got to let out a loud whoop and maybe, maybe even look like you're dancing a little. Maybe high-five somebody next to you and really celebrate uh, your amazing Savior. It's your song. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are children of God. You stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. you got to celebrate that. Celebrate that with a new song. Whatever you do, don't be silent. Right? Lift your voice and sing. You have one more shot if you weren't singing today, right? At the response song, right? So let's lift our voices and sing about the greatness of God. Um, last point, we also get a picture of what we are to speak. Verse 4 and 5 says this, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay, now verse 5, where he says, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless, that's referring back to the earlier part of Revelation where God rebuked the, the seven churches in his letters to them for, for essentially lying and saying that they are believers when they're not. So he says, even though you attend the synagogue, in your heart you're really attending the synagogue of Satan. Right, very strong language. Uh, warning them against just giving God mere lip service, outward service, right? Because God sees right through that, what you worship in your heart. And by that, I mean what I meant earlier, um, the thing that you turn to for safety, for identity, for self-worth, that's what you really worship. And, and so here you have the 40, 144,000 not having lies in their mouths. And that's a symbolic way of saying these are people who really live out what they profess to believe. They don't just pay God lip service. They live in service to God from the inside out. They trust Him with all their hearts. They find their worth in Him. 
and they hold his truth to be their truth. So it's not just on their lips, it is, but it's also in their hearts and therefore in their hands, their feet. It's their whole being. Now, what is this deal with those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins? Pastor, please explain what is going on. Um, I don't think there's a better argument than this verse to prove that the number 144,000 and various things in the, in the book of Revelation are symbolic and not literal. Because if you take 144,000 literally, if you take Mark of the Beast literally, you take the Lamb literally, you have to take this literally, that the chosen people of God who will be brought into the eternal kingdom of God are virgin men only. And we know that's incorrect, not just like politically incorrect, it's biblically incorrect. That rules out Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, bye, right? If you had kids, you knew women, bye. You're not welcome in the kingdom. That can't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. So you have to look at it symbolically, interpret it like it's an apocalyptic vision. Virginity was an ancient way of symbolizing faithfulness, symbolizing faithfulness, okay? And since God relates to his people often as, his, as their spiritual bridegroom, this is a fitting symbol to also represent the faithfulness of people with chastity, okay? And this appears in Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Hosea, right? And, and what, what does it mean tangibly, practically? It means the people of God worship God alone, not God plus money. It's like if I have God but no money, I still feel unsafe and insecure. If I have God but I don't have people's approval, I don't have self-worth. If I have God but I don't have a good body image, then I feel ashamed. Right? That's not worshiping God alone. God would say that's being unfaithful to him your heart of worship is is scattered all over the place faithfulness to the lord means you worship him alone it's being able to say to your lover it's you i love and you alone no one else that's faithfulness and that's in god's eyes speaking the truth holding truth on your lips that's the primary meaning here's the secondary meaning the other meaning behind speaking the truth is you actually know what it means to live in God's truth as opposed to other, other versions, alternative truths. Um, and, and this calls for a certain level of intellectual sobriety and, and equipping. Can you engage with the world and its system of beliefs and distinguish them with your beliefs as followers of Christ? We all have a doctrine. Uh, nobody's without a doctrine. Right? This idea that, hey, don't be so dogmatic don't impose your beliefs, your doctrines on other people, is a doctrine <laughs> that you're saying, if you don't agree with that, you're wrong. Everyone's saying I'm right, you're wrong. The only question is uh, whether you know what yours is and whether you believe it to be true. Okay. And that takes some learning and studying and equipping. That takes discipleship. Right? Are you invested in that? in the process of discipleship, in learning how to carry the truth of God on your lips, so that so much so you can quite easily distinguish that from anything that contradicts it, right? You're so familiar with the authentic thing, you're, you're quick to identify the counterfeit stuff. Is God's speech on your lips, is, are his truths your truths that, that define you? Um, Remember, the, the beast, right, the devil has only one primary agenda ever since Genesis, and that is to make you a question, make you question what God has spoken. 
did God really say? And question that to the point where you come to not even knowing what he has said and make you throw your hands up and say, what, what has God even said? Uh, carry the truth of God on your lips. That's your primary offensive. Study the word diligently. Be familiar with Scripture's principles for life, biblical wisdom for life. So in closing, let me offer this as a practical application. Let's start here, right? There are various aspects of our lives. There are, there's, a, there's the relational context, how we relate to people. There's a vocational context, what we do at work, how we carry ourselves at work. There's the physical aspect, how we take care of our bodies, um, what we do with our bodies, what we feed ourselves and things like that. There's a financial aspect to life, how we budget money and what we spend money on. These are all areas in which you make a ton of decisions based upon principles, principles. And even if you're not aware of what your principle is, you're operating by some principle, and it's important for you to identify what that principle is. Even if that principle is, I'm going to do whatever I want. (laughs) That's a principle that you're operating. It's not a good principle. It leads to waste and excess and selfishness. You need biblical principles then to replace whatever alternative principle you've been operating by. Pick an area where you feel as though, in this area, I really have no clue or least clue as to what biblical principle for this area is. Uh, I mean, just yesterday I was talking with a a lovely couple uh, who wanted to know how to uh, build their understanding of, of financial wisdom according to the Bible. And I recommended a book to them. Right? It's called Money, Debt, and Finances by Jim Neuheiser, my counseling professor. Pick up that book, and then as you study it together, one page at a time, you get on the same page, not only with one another, but with God when it comes to financial wisdom. Develop yourself in that area. Uh, some of you had asked me for, recommended me for resources on uh, what a biblical marriage looks like, biblical parenting is like, right? Pick an area and get started. Start becoming, developing yourself into a resourceful disciple who who knows how to carry truth, God's truth, uh, on your lips. Uh, So ask. Pick an area and then ask. Pastor, here's an area I want to grow in my understanding of. Um, Here's an area of my spiritual life I want to mature in. Can you recommend me something? It's, hard, it's really hard to recommend a book when no one's asking. Right here, I think you should read this. <laughs> that usually doesn't go very well. But right, you have not because you ask not. Right? So ask for these things. And we can also, right, pastors are helpful just to help you filter through. Because there's a lot of bad resources out there too. Right? A lot of nonsensical things out there as well. And we can point you to something that's more biblical. So please ask and please begin studying the truth. Grow in these areas so you can have these truths be on your lips. And, and God's truth is not something you, you just kind of uh, listen to for, for an hour and a half on Sundays. But it's something you, you walk with tangibly and practically in every sphere of your life, every square inch of your life. Remember where you stand as God's people. Uh, Remember to sing and remember to speak his truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this picture of the church. Thank you for first uh, warning us and sobering us to the picture of the dragon and the beast and uh, putting us in the mindset of guarding against them and resisting the, the devil and 
fighting this spiritual battle. And now, Lord, showing us the picture of who we are um, as a church, what we are to do uh, as people of God gathered and assembled as the body of Christ here in this, in this uh, place, in this house of worship. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to uh, remember these things. Uh, remember who we are, who we are called to be, where we're called to stand, what we're called to sing, what we're called to speak, and help us to grow uh, one day at a time, gradually in this direction. Uh, may we be the people who truly follow the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.